Thank you. Thanks, Karina, very much for that very, very nice introduction. And I'm just thrilled to be here. And you, you have put on such a wonderful program. This has been great. I've seen a lot of it. The last panel that had your four panelists up here, I watched that. So, so thank you for what you're doing. And congratulations on the 10th anniversary. That's pretty special. You know, Colorado College is a great institution set in a beautiful place with Pikes Peak in your backyard. I won't embarrass anyone in particular, but some of my friends and family are students here, and I hear great things about their experience here at this college. It's a real treat for me to see so many young people engaged in the fight for conservation and against climate change. I see a different audience than the one I have for a Senate floor speech. I tell you that in a good way, okay, in a good way. I am uh, so glad to be out west because for me, the west is home, as she mentioned. My family homesteaded in the west almost 180 years ago. We have roots in Utah, Arizona, my home state of New Mexico, and here in Colorado. Westerners have a special connection to the land. Our thousands of acres of gorgeous, untamed beauty, 60-mile vistas, snow-covered rugged mountains, alpine lakes and mountain streams, and abundant wildlife. The great Western writer, Wallace Stegner, called the, the West the geography of hope, and it sure is for me. The wild beauty of the West will always inspire me, and it inspires my public service, and it probably is one of the biggest reasons I am in public service. As some of you know, the Udall family has been working for a long time to protect the beauty and grandeur of the West. The, the, she ran through it quickly, so I'll just do it again, but I was going to make all the connections. But uh, Uncle Mo, we call him Uncle Mo, he was the chair of the House Interior Committee. My cousin Mark, your senator here and your House member for 18 years. Uh, cousin Brad, you may have not heard as much about him, but a great water expert and climate expert that uh, is out of Colorado State University and lives up in Boulder. And my father, Stuart Udall, worked in the cabinet of two presidents as interior secretary. So just last month, we marked what would have been my father's 100th birthday. That was on January um, 31st, 2020. And I've been reflecting on my dad's legacy. It's become clear to me just how much we can and must learn from his vision. During my father's first year as Secretary of Interior, the head of the Bureau of Reclamation flew him over southern Utah to show him a site of the next big dam. And my dad looked out of that airplane window and at the red rock spires below, and he didn't see a dam. He saw the next national park. And he went back to Washington and helped create Canyonlands National Park. In 1963, 57 years later, my dad warned the nation about what he dubbed the quiet crisis in a book he wrote, and President Kennedy wrote a foreword in that book. He saw the creeping destruction of nature and wrote that, and he's really writing this to all of you, you the younger folks that are here. You're the next generation. This is his quote. It's a pretty special quote about what how you relate to the land, and I'm quoting here, each generation has its own rendezvous with the land, 
For despite all our fee titles and claims of ownership, we are all brief tenants on this planet. By choice or by default, we will carve out a land legacy for our heirs." End quote. Along with scientists like his friend Rachel Carson, my dad called on the nation to act with urgency. And, and then the strangest thing happened. The nation actually acted. And in 1960, policymakers enacted many of our nation's bedrock conservation laws and preserved millions of acres of wild places. It's hard to imagine in this day of bitter partisanship over environmental issues, but in the 1960s and in the 1970s, Congress passed these groundbreaking laws on a strong bipartisan basis. And they did it during the era of big dams and economic development at any cost. That was kind of the attitude then. When conservation and economic, when conservation and environmental protection were afterthoughts at best. Now, I didn't come here to talk to you about how great my dad was. He wouldn't have wanted that. He's a very modest guy. He would have wanted me and he wanted all of us to get to work on the problems at hand. And we now have got our work cut out for us. The first challenge is what I call the nature crisis. Wildlife has never been in greater danger. Here and across the nation and the world, we are losing species and habitat at unprecedented rates in human history. Since 1970, in North America, we've lost three billion birds. In the US, a recent study found that we lose a football field's worth of habitat every 30 seconds. A comprehensive UN biodiversity study found that one million species risk extinction. A sixth mass extinction upon us unless we act to preserve space for nature. In the West, wildlife is at risk. The iconic plains bison survive the ice age, but it may not survive the age of humans. Plains bison, what's numbered? Just think of this, 30 to 60 million bison in the plains across North America. Now the number is 20,000. So 30 to 60 million, 20,000. And it's Native American tribes that are nurturing the bison back. The once ubiquitous, ubiquitous uh, monarch butterfly found in eight western, the pole states that, that we talked about earlier, is in jeopardy. Populations of other pollinators like bees are crashing. Human existence depends on biodiversity. At least 40% of the world's economy is based on biological resources. Biodiversity gives us food, shelter, medicine, economic development, life itself. As my father said, and this is a quote here from one of his books back many, many years, plans to protect air and water, wilderness and wildlife are not in fact plans, are in fact plans to protect man. And today, he was very conscious of women and he would have said he would have changed man to human beings, protecting human beings. And the nature crisis is inextricably linked to the climate crisis. Climate change destroys habitat and con conditions necessary for healthy ecosystems. 
and the fragmentation of habitat makes it harder for wildlife to adapt to a changing climate. The destruction of forests and natural lands both creates greenhouse gases and reduces the potential for absorption of carbon dioxide. I don't have to explain what climate change is doing to the West, water scarcity, out of control, wildfires, pollution from fossil fuel production. Yet the president, who is down the road from us tonight, isn't listening. He rolled back almost every effort we have to fight climate change and save nature. He's withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. He's eliminated the clean power plan. He's trying to subsidize uneconomic coal-fired plants. His administration has significantly weakened the Endangered Species Act by rule. They've eviscerated Clean Water Act protections. They're taking a hatchet to some of the most precious public lands with an unprecedented rollback of Grand Staircase and Bears Ears National Monuments. The list is seemingly never ending. It's no exaggeration, just fact, that the Trump administration has the worst environmental record in history. But I'm not here to make you depressed. I kind of felt there was an era of depression setting over all of you with all that. So we've gotten to the depressed point. We're moving up, okay? Just listen to this part. We're moving up. So I, I, and I'm here to get you fired up, okay? Um, one of the most valuable lessons my father taught me was to learn from history. Because everything we do, every step we take, is building on those who came before us. In my father's time, Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River was on fire. The bald eagle was going extinct. Cities were clogged with smog. Factories dumped toxins into rivers without any limits. And economic growth and the so-called progress were almost all people cared about. The leaders of the environmental movement 50 years ago met the challenges of their times, and we must meet the challenges of our times. Because the quiet crisis my father wrote about in the 60s is quiet no more. The crisis of nature and the crisis of climate change have risen to a crescendo, and the public is ready for action. We must write a new playbook to save our planet and our way of life. Here's the good news. I'm here to tell you we can do it. The West has changed immensely since my dad's era. Our economies have grown and diversified. Our cities have skylines. We have become much more diverse. The West has evolved and we've moved forward. And so has public opinion, especially on environmental issues. The people are demanding action and that's why I'm confident we can meet the challenges before us, just like my father's generation did. Two-thirds of Westerners think climate change is a serious problem. That's up 11% in 10 years. Three-quarters want their members of Congress and governors to have a plan to reduce carbon pollution, including a majority of Republicans. 77% consider habitat loss for fish and wildlife to be a serious problem. And 76% support protecting wildlife corridors on public lands. So you've got Democrats and Republicans and independents sharing these views by big majorities. Despite what you see coming out of Washington, there is an opportunity for fashioning consensus-based solutions. It's beyond clear that the administration's rollback of all things environmental 
is wildly unpopular in the West. And here's the irony. The president's attacks are energizing the environmental movement in this country like we have not seen in a very long time. You ask somebody like Colin, who was on this panel here with the National Wildlife Federation, how's your membership drive doing? It's off the charts. You ask all the other groups that are concerned with all these issues we're talking about. Membership is growing. People are energized. We need to harness that energy to write a bold new conservation vision for the future, a vision that doesn't just undo the Trump administration's attacks, but goes even bigger. Because if we only reverse the Trump record, it would be like putting a Band-Aid on a life-threatening wound. So let me tell you about my vision. I hope it will become your vision too. It's threefold. And then I'm going to just zip through that, and then I want to get to questions and have a real discussion with you and hear from you, because you're right out here in the West in the middle of this. First, we must confront climate change with everything we have and transition quickly to a carbon-free economy. I've introduced a renewable electricity standard bill that gets us to a carbon-free energy sector by mid-century. That must be priority number one. And we should make our public lands pollution-free. Fossil fuel emissions from public lands account for almost one quarter of our CO2 emissions. Instead of being a source of pollution, public lands should be part of the solution. The, Ameri the West's solar, wind, and geothermal potential is immense on public lands and on tribal lands. Not only can tribes fight climate change, but this renewable energy potential translates into tribal energy independence and economic growth. And it's not just renewable energy. By protecting and restoring our public lands, those lands can absorb greenhouse gases. But I want to be clear about one thing. While we commit to tackling climate change by transitioning from fossil fuels to clean energy, we must also make a strong commitment that we will not leave behind communities and workers in the coal and oil and gas industries. Now second, the second pillar of my vision, we must save nature. Scientists are calling on us to protect 30% of our lands and waters by 2030 to save the natural world as we know it, to halt the looming mass extinction. This fall, I introduced the 30 by 30 resolution to save nature to officially set this conservation goal for the United States. And I did it with your own senator here in Colorado, Senator Michael Bennett. He's been my partner in this. And according to today's polls, 73% of voters support this and support cut, and the support cuts across party lines. And I must say I'm pretty excited about that. We've been in touch with all the Democratic presidential candidates, and they're all endorsing the 30-30 target. So this has movement. They wouldn't be doing that if they weren't hearing from people about it. Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Sanders, Warren, they're all on the bill. They, the ones in the Senate are actually on the bill. The ones that aren't have it in their environmental plank. You can see the impacts of public support for conservation and the success we're having in Congress with the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And I'll talk about that in a little bit, but the last year 
we permanently reauthorize land and water conservation fund forever. So it's not going to expire like it's been doing the last couple of years. And I helped increase the annual funding to nearly $500 million, the highest level in 15 years. We just need to get it up to that $900 million, which is the, the, the vision people had when my father helped create it back in the 1960s. So thank you. Thank you very much. And then, and then third, the third pillar of the vision is this. As we write our new playbook, environmental justice must be our North Star. And the, the young woman here, um, Mate Arce, she, she was incredible talking about the challenges. If for those of you that were here on the panel, the challenges that communities face, communities of color face, low-income uh, communities face as a result of the kinds of dramatic changes we're going to see and as, as the result of, uh, of um, pollution. Low-income communities, communities of color, and native communities too often bear the consequences of environmental destruction at the hands of the rich and powerful. As we transition to a clean energy economy, principles of equity and inclusion must guide our work. No one can be left behind. Minority, tribal, and marginalized communities often bear the brunt of polluted air, poisoned water, and natural disasters. The environmental movement in the 1960s was overwhelmingly white. The movement today needs to look like America in 2020. Now, concluding, toward the end of his life, my father wrote a letter to his grandchildren. It's out there online if you want to check it out. He a letter he called the most important letter he'd ever written, this letter to his grandchildren. His letter was a call to action, to climate change, and to, to action on climate change and to transition away from fossil fuels. And he ended the letter, and I, I will end my remarks with this quote from him. And he said, go well, do well, my children, he said. Cherish sunsets, wild creatures, and wild places have a love affair with the wonder and beauty of the earth. Let's listen to my father's plea and write a new playbook to save the wonder and beauty of the earth from, for the benefit of all the earth's people. Thank you, and now I'm very, very happy to answer questions and carry on a dialogue with you. And Karina, I don't know how you want to do this, if you want to call on people or how you want to. First of all, thank you. Mm. Thank you.